finally, I want to remind I'm, everyone yet again that this is what good faith oversight looks like, not the Republican playbook of running interference for a twice impeached, four times indicted white supremacist demagogue who would rather overthrow our democracy than admit he lost an election. Oh, man. Someone get that congresswoman a job with the media, please. Pretty please. We need her. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. She's pretty good in Congress, too. I got the feeling that something right. But the media really I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, we got some good news out of Pennsylvania, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, good news there too. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us, Desi Doyen. That was Corey Bush, yes. was it, at the top there? Yes, it was. That was the uh, hearing in the so-called... Well, in the Judiciary Committee in the U.S. House, that uh, hearing with Merrick Garland, Attorney General Merrick Garland, on Wednesday in which they uh, harangued and harassed him for all sorts of imaginary things that, guess what, we will not be covering on today's broadcast. Correct, and thank you. Uh, You're welcome. I see no reason to give more uh, oxygen to all of that nonsense. Fox News will take care of it. They're fair and balanced, after all. Uh, Coming up shortly, however, the great Dan Frumkin, formerly of Washington Post, then HuffPo, then uh, The Intercept, now of Press Watch, focusing on mainstream media and its many dangerous failures, will join us for some advice for American newsrooms which they could really use right now <laughs> yes. uh, from both himself and from a bunch of other media critics and journalists and historians on how the American media can and must correct course right now as we head into what Dan describes as, quote, another potentially cataclysmic election in 2024, arguably the most perilous in American history. That's all we'll be talking about. Anyway, uh, first, voters... Nothing special. No, just nothing. Uh, Anyway, voters... uh, Whoa, some democracy news right off the bat here. Voters in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania 
headed to the polls for special elections on Tuesday as Democrats continued the pattern of winning in such elections uh, that we have seen now time and again since the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court last year and over and over and over again this year. Democratic candidates easily won special state legislative elections in both Pennsylvania and New Hampshire on Tuesday night, continuing the party's streak of strong performances in special contests, which is seen as a good omen for 2024 and giving Democrats a better chance of holding two critical swing state legislator, legislative chambers into next year. In New Hampshire, whose 500-member state house, yes, you heard that right, 500 members. That is the largest in the nation. Uh, in New Hampshire, Democrat Hal Rafter reportedly won a previously Republican-held seat northeast of Manchester, narrowing the Republican edge in the state house there to just one seat out of 500. 198 Republicans to 197 Democrats, with Democrats heavily favored for another special election scheduled for November, meaning the party could soon split split control of the chamber and break the GOP trifecta controlling state government in the otherwise narrowly divided state. In Pennsylvania, meanwhile, former congressional aide Lindsey Powell won in a safe blue seat in Pittsburgh, meaning the uh, party will maintain its narrow one-seat edge over Republicans, 102 to 101 in the state's House of Representatives. Republicans control the state Senate in the Keystone State, however, while the governor is Democrat Josh Shapiro. He won just last year in uh, the 2022 midterms. Both races in Pennsylvania and New Hampshire continue not only a trend of Democrats winning in special elections since the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade last year, but a trend of Democrats overperforming both President Joe Biden's 2020 results and the results of the 2022 midterms in special elections so far this year. The trend that began after Dobbs has only accelerated since the midterms last November, when Democrats far outperformed expectations for what would usually be a huge year for out-of-power Republicans during a midterm in which a Democrat is in the White House. For instance, former President Donald Trump narrowly won the New Hampshire district in uh, 2020. The Democrats won on Tuesday night with the Democrat rafter beating the GOP nominee Jim Gusofsky by a remarkable 12-point margin, 56 to 44. Mm. Again, that was a district that Donald Trump won just uh, just over two years ago. And in Pennsylvania, well, Biden won the district, the safe district, which voted on Tuesday. Uh, Biden won that by 22 percentage points. So you can see why it's seen as a safe district. Well, that was already a blowout. But Powell on Tuesday defeated the Republican Aaron Ottenreif by 30 percentage points. So you see the improvement here. Uh, yeah. In these uh, in these districts, 
legislative camp, the uh, 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 Heather Williams of the uh, Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee said these victories are shifting the balance of power in key states and putting Democrats in a stronger position to move this country forward. That after Democrats picked up an historic four new legislative majorities in last year's midterms. According to 538, Democrats have improved upon their partisan support in districts by a whopping 11 percentage points over the course of 30 state legislative special elections this year alone. The districts where Democrats have overperformed include both so-called blue and red districts alike. For example, uh, from a majority black seat in Louisiana to Republican-leaning seats in rural Maine and Wisconsin. And despite somewhat misleading national polls for the uh, 2024 presidential race more than a year out, showing an essentially even race between President Biden and the criminally charged GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, Uh, even though we do not run national elections in this country, but state-by-state elections, the news could be still better in the uh, critical swing state of Pennsylvania next year for Democrats. It will certainly be better for voters, for all voters, and, yes, for democracy overall in the Keystone State. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro on Tuesday announced that the state will now automatically register eligible Pennsylvanians to vote when they obtain and uh, obtain or renew uh, identification cards and driver's licenses. The Democratic governor said in a news release detailing the plan, quote, I'm committed to ensuring free and fair elections that allow every eligible voter to make their voice heard. Automatic voter registration, he said, is a common-sense step to ensure election security and save Pennsylvania's time and tax dollars. 23 mostly Democratic-run states, plus Washington, D.C., have now enacted some form of automatic voter registration, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Well, starting this week... Residents who go to the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation driver and photo license centers to get new or renewed licenses and ID cards, they will automatically be taken through the voter registration application process unless they opt out of doing so. Why anybody would want to do that, by the way, just because you registered to vote doesn't mean you have to vote. <laughs> You could be registered to vote and then just not go vote. So why would you want to opt uh, out of doing so? Yeah, you got an idea? That I, makes I, no sense whatsoever. But the good thing about doing it, say, at the DMV, is that there is an official there who is checking your identification to well, make sure you that go. you are eligible to vote. There you go. Now, I, you know, the, the governor's office has said that uh, previously eligible voters had to take additional steps in order to opt into the voter registration process. And why is that? Well, because voter registration has for decades in this country been made as difficult as possible, longer than decades. It's been made as difficult as possible by those who oppose democracy. 
and government of, by, and for the people. Plain and simple. That is it. That's the only reason why it's so difficult in so many states around the country to register. It's why we have a registration system at all, frankly. And with all of the various nightmares in our country and in our electoral system in recent years, automatic registration, as we've seen in many states now, is one of the very real upsides that that easily allow more participation in the small-D democratic process, no matter which side of it you consider yourself on. But of course, that's why so many neo-fascists and authoritarian Republicans tend to oppose automatic voter registration. But not all of them. Quote, the voter is already in a state government facility with their identification documents, uh, documentation in hand, and they will have their picture taken and sign their name electronically. That, according to Pennsylvania Secretary of the Commonwealth, Al Schmidt, a Republican who was nominated to the job by the Democratic governor, Josh Shapiro. Having all of that happen at the same time, said the Republican Schmidt, means the verification process is extremely secure and makes the registration process more efficient. Something else you would think that Republicans would be in favor of. You know, it's conservative, efficient, saves time and money for everyone. Pennsylvania House Republicans, however, bristled at the Democratic <laughs> governor's actions, saying this should have been done via the legislature instead, which, of course, by the way, has not done so for years, when they certainly could have. Republicans controlled both houses for a long time. They didn't do it. Uh, uh, quote, this unilateral action on the eve of what is likely to be a hotly contested and close election will cause many Pennsylvania voters to continue to question the security and the results of our system promised House Republican leader Brian Cutler, again, who could have applauded the move to a more small-D democratic system and access to the polls to residents, to all residents in his state, including Republicans. Instead, he chose to use this uh, pro-democracy effort to, yes, undermine confidence in democracy. According to Shapiro's office, as of December 22, 8.7 million Pennsylvanians were registered to vote, but more than 10.3 million were eligible to register, but had not. That is 1.6 million eligible voters in Pennsylvania who are not even signed up to do so. In a state where uh, Republicans still control the Senate, but the House is controlled by Democrats by one single seat. Democrats won a whole lot of elections in 2022, notes Washington Post Greg Sargent, in no small part on their vow to strengthen and defend democracy. But if they hope to turn the issue into a sustained political winner, they have to deliver on that promise by showing voters what a pro-democracy governing agenda actually looks like. Sargent argues that Governor Shapiro's move is exactly that. Shapiro told Sergeant, quote, I see voter participation as key to strengthening democracy, noting that he's committed to ensuring free and fair elections and making sure every eligible voter can make their voice heard. 
The change, notes uh, a sergeant, could be dramatic, and all of this has the makings of an important experiment, he writes. Perhaps no, Democratic camp- no Democrat campaigned as aggressively in defense of democracy in last year's midterms as Shapiro did. As the state attorney general uh, back in 2020, he fought Donald Trump's efforts to reverse his loss. That would be to try to steal the state. (laughs) And in uh, 2022, the year that Shapiro was elected, he vowed to use the governorship to prevent a future stolen election, parlaying all of that into a landslide victory over the far-right ultra-MAGA opponent, Doug Mastriano, who I hear is running for the U.S. Senate uh, in Pennsylvania this year. I'm, I'm all for him. In Pennsylvania, the uh, the state GOP continues to elevate election deniers to positions of local importance, writes Sargent, in effect feeding doubts about the state's voting system itself. If automatic registration can make the voter rolls more accurate and make the system of enrollment and registration more efficient and user-friendly, that could make voters less susceptible to that sort of MAGA demagoguery, writes Sargent. This is why those who win elections by vowing to protect democracy should deliver on a broader pro-democracy program, he says. In Minnesota, Democrats who gained ground at the state level passed such a package earlier this year. Such policies, which include expanded early voting, same-day registration, no-excuse absentee voting, are all designed to make election systems more functional and inclusive, inclusive for all parties. Republicans, by contrast, at the state level, uh, Sergeant Notes, have been gerrymandering, restricting ballot access, manipulating the rules of political competition for decades. But... Trump has uh, exacerbated those tendencies. Right now, Republicans in numerous states are responding to recent election losses by supercharging anti-democratic, anti-majoritarian tactics, even though evidence is mounting that people are growing accustomed to voting in defense of democracy. Writes Sargent, uh, offering a concrete pro-democracy agenda is a good way for Democrats to keep reinforcing that positive dynamic and keep putting MAGA on the defensive, which is hard to disagree with. Of course, uh, merely saying so, merely supporting automatic voter registration for all, for all potential voters of any party or no party at all, that might be one of the things that journalists might be accused of being partisan for merely being in support of, merely being in support of broader democracy. Mind you, the process does not make it any more easy or difficult for any particular party uh, to register voters. It makes it easier for all voters. But we have arrived at a point in this country where being pro-democracy is somehow tied to being pro-democratic party which should, in fact, tell you quite a lot about where the Republican Party has now ended up in this country. That's why I have uh, characterized the upcoming elections next year as uh, not so much a contest between Democrats and Republicans, but between democracy and autocracy. 
But pointing out those facts, they're just facts. They're indisputable facts. Pointing that out is still seen as partisan, unfortunately, in too many newsrooms around the country, leading journalists to pull punches on reporting basic facts and basic truths, which, by the way, uh, that ends up helping Republicans. Which, of course, is the whole point of falsely describing the media as liberal and facts as somehow pro-capital-D democratic. Unless and until the U.S. media find a way to impart these cold, hard facts to the American people and get over their long, dumb contagion of being called partisan when they are simply reporting facts... Uh, and they stop trying to level a decidedly unlevel playing field by both sidesing their coverage, which is ultimately a favor to an increasingly authoritarian Republican Party, this nation remains at grave risk and the world along with it. And that is where the media needs some help. And fast. We've got some. Longtime journalist and press critic Dan Frumkin is here with some of that and not a moment too soon. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, please do. We could use some good news, and I don't mean just good news like good news. I mean good news like good news, as opposed to bad journalism. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yesterday on the program, I briefly cited some new polling out from Harvard University and the Harris Poll, which found that, uh, that voters are essentially evenly divided when it comes to the GOP's ridiculous and evidence-free impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. Given the extraordinary lack of evidence tying uh, Joe Biden to any high crime or misdemeanor related to any of his son Hunter Biden's questionable business dealings, despite a five-year investigation by a Trump-appointed DOJ prosecutor, along with an IRS investigation over those same years and some nine months of congressional probes in three different GOP-led U.S. House committees to date, finding, and to be clear, finding zero evidence of any wrongdoing by the president of the United States. Given all of that, it is remarkable that any survey of the American people would find the uh, that uh, voters are divided on whether Joe Biden's conduct was somehow worthy of an impeachment inquiry. 
Nonetheless, the new survey out this week finds voters just over one year out from the next presidential election are evenly split 50-50 on whether the new impeachment inquiry announced unilaterally last week without a House vote or debate by Speaker Kevin McCarthy actually raises legitimate questions about Biden's conduct or is mostly politically motivated. The American people are 50-50 on that. Those numbers, which frankly should be alarming to both Democrats and media alike, after all, it is their job to inform the American people as to what is really going on in both their dysfunctional government and faltering democracy. But those numbers uh, might not come as much of a surprise these days, given that a number of other polls in recent weeks, for example, find Joe Biden essentially tied with Donald Trump, the GOP frontrunner for the 2024 nomination, despite the fact that Trump is now facing 91 criminal felony charges in four different jurisdictions. No matter what you may think of Joe Biden's age or an economy which is doing very well, at least on paper, with record low unemployment, falling inflation numbers, if not in real world perceptions by many Americans who see food prices still high, gas prices surging again and spiked interest rates on home mortgages. Uh, no matter what you may think, it's remarkable to think that the American people are pretty much, you know, havesy havesy on whether they would prefer a president who competently helped us out of a worldwide pandemic, restored sanity to the White House, and has shepherded a plethora of progressive legislation through a bitterly divided Congress during his first term of office, or the guy who tried to steal a presidential election, overthrow the U.S. government by fostering an insurrection, stole thousands of highly classified national documents upon leaving the White House and refused to give them back, and who is now facing 91 criminal counts for all of the above. Well, I guess those both sound pretty good to Americans, I guess. What explains all of this? Longtime political media critic Dan Frumkin took a stab at some of these questions in trying to figure out where the media have gone wrong in recent years and where they can now go right on the eve of what he described last month as our coming, quote, chaos election. None of our newsroom leaders could possibly have imagined 10 years ago, writes Frumkin in his Press Watch newsletter, that fascist appeals to violence and racial hatred would be so common and effective, that the political discourse would be so awash in misinformation and disinformation, that homophobia and misogyny would make such a dramatic comeback, or that a con man who engineered a failed coup could be a front-runner for the presidency, posing a dire threat to the country's future as a democracy. But even as the nation faces another potentially cataclysmic election in 2024, arguably the most perilous in American history, Frumkin writes, the mainstream news industry continues to engage in the same business-as-usual that got us here in the first place. Maybe it's time to change things up? Frumkin asks rhetorically. He writes that he decided to survey a few dozen experts, all of them critical readers of the news, many of them journalists, asking for their suggestions of what our top newsrooms should do differently this time around. 
Generally speaking, he notes, their answers are not radical. They are simply common sense. Well, no wonder they're so difficult for the corporate media to carry out at this point, I guess. Some call for changes that have been necessary for a long time and are now urgent, existentially so, he says. But some changes are specific to this moment, when one of our two political parties has become so extremist and anti-democratic that so-called both-sides reporting is no longer a safe harbor for political journalism. Indeed, it actively misinforms the public about the stakes of the coming election. Which is, of course, a point that we have been trying to underscore for years now on this program and, of course, at bradblog.com. So we more than welcome the help here on this from uh, Dan Frumkin. Joining us now is Dan Frumkin, editor of Press Watch and a longtime champion of online accountability journalism. He headed up Washington Post's wildly popular and must-read at the time, White House Watch, for more than a decade, including during the George W. Bush years and following his removal from the Post for, I think, telling too much truth too directly and too consistently and not doing enough both-sidesing it. Frumkin went on to write for Huffington Post, The Intercept, The Neiman Foundation's Watchdog Project, and now via the nonprofit PressWatchers.org newsletter with his motto, quote, I afflict comfortable journalists. Oh, Dan Frumkin, great to have you back on the broadcast, my friend. Well, thank you. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm um, Well, given everything that's going on, I'm okay, <laughs> I guess. I've always said the the Trump Trump presidency was the death of small talk. How yeah, are you? Really? Well, yeah. God, where do I start? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Don't ask. Anyway, uh, Dan, you you uh, you spoke a lot uh, to a lot of of fantastic folks in this piece, uh, and even asked uh, readers to share the piece with folks who might be in leadership positions in American mm -hmm. newsrooms. And I want to I want to talk about some of the specific advice that journalists and historians and so forth shared uh, in a bit. But I want to begin in a broader terms, bouncing off some of the polling that I referenced in the intro. The Democratic Party in the White House is itself no doubt responsible for no small part of what I see as wildly off base understanding of facts by the American people. And yet. <laughs> I still come back to the media when I see those 50-50 poll numbers uh, because ultimately it feels like their failure. Ultimately, it seems like it's their job, our job, if you will, to inform the American people about what is true and what is false. And, and, and clearly they are not succeeding, Dan. Am I right or am I underestimating the responsibility of the uh, the political parties, in this case, Democrats, at, at getting their own message out and their own accomplishments out to the American people. Well, I think I think a lot of the members of the of the Washington press corps would would say that it is just, it is the Democratic Party's fault. But it, but I agree with you. It's not the Democratic Party's job to correct misinformation. It's the Democratic Party's job to make its Democratic arguments and the Republican Party to make Republican arguments. And it's the press's job to come in and say this is in fact. You know, correct, and and in an environment now where there are so many untruths flying around, mm -hmm. saying this is just not not the case, and instead what you have is exactly what you talked about in the intro. This this ridiculous cycle that I keep seeing, which is that the media basically underinforms people about what's going on, mm -hmm. and then when the polls come out showing that they're underinformed, they write a big article about saying, "Hey, the the people <laughs> yes. are terribly underinformed." Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a self-reinforcing uh, uh, the feedback cycle. 
Right. And, you know, I, I think that that you know, the origin story here really is, is key because it goes back to the day that Trump won the 2016 election. And nobody in the news business expected that. Yeah. I mean, the, the people forget that nobody expected that to happen. Mm -hmm. And and so they, they weren't prepared and they didn't really change. And uh, that was a moment when they needed to change and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And and ever since then, it's been a moment for them that they need to change and they won't. So, so they're still not changing. They're still, yes, they'll call Trump a liar. They'll say that he lied. But fundamentally, they're still adopting the right-wing frames. They're still not rebutting misinformation with the enthusiasm they should. They're still doing the horse race journalism, which allows them to be gamed by, by politicians, especially on the right. It, it, you, you would think that at some point they would realize that they're not doing it the right way anymore. Mm. Well, you would think, but it has been years that folks like uh, you and me and, and many others have been calling them out for that, even before uh, the 2016 failure. And that's certainly what True. it is. But I got to say, uh, Dan, you know, because I, I, I question myself uh, on this, I, you know, I see day after day. The White House uh, is trying to let the American people know what they're doing. I see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and, you know, executive uh, secretaries and so forth out singing their own praises of their landmark policies. They're going to factory openings and so forth, uh, you know, discussing the $400 billion investment in climate change and bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. It seems like they are doing their job, but if the media are not covering it or they're spending the bulk of their time talking about, you know, Donald Trump defending himself against 91 felony counts, which I admit is newsworthy. <laughs> it's a big story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who is actually uh, to blame at that point? Uh, you know, the Democrats or, or the media or Donald Trump? Well, I you know, it's funny because just just last week, uh, Ian Sam is one of the uh, press folks at the White House, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a letter to the news media basically saying, guys, come on, you know, cover this like, you know, like, you know, you should cover it, mm -hmm. which is basically that they have nothing. Mm -hmm. They've got nothing. It's a complete fishing expedition. It's a complete distraction from the business of the government. Come on. And of course, this fell on deaf ears because news executives do not like being lectured like by the kindergarten, you know, like kindergartners, which mm -hmm. is unfortunately what they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I don't know how much more the white house could be doing right now. Um, given that, that the press has a, you know, blind eye towards Biden's successes mm -hmm. and is focused instead on whatever the Republicans are talking about, which, mm -hmm. which is, which is impeachment and Hunter Biden these days. And, and now this ridiculous, you know, imbroglio about the budget they can't even get them agree amongst themselves on a on a on a budget plan mm -hmm. that would never fly with either the senate or the white house mm -hmm. it, it, you know, there, there's 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 massive massive dysfunction on the right and unfortunately the media feels like when it reports that it's being biased you know it's being liberal mm. and 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 if god forbid it should write anything nice about biden then it would definitely be accused of being liberal yes of course i i do notice uh you mentioned uh, that uh, the problem seems to be with news executives. You also focused mm. in your piece, you know, let if you know any newsroom leaders know your headline, a desperate appeal to newsroom leaders on the eve of a chaos election. Uh, I find that interesting. Are, it, it, are, are they the problem here rather than the journalists themselves, as you see it? Well, 
Yes, I mean not rather than, but but in addition to, or mm -hmm. rather, the, they're the, they're the first cause. Mm -hmm. I mean, these journalists would not be doing what they're doing if it wasn't what their bosses wanted them to do. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, you know, is is this the the the, the debacle of the interview uh, that that Kristen Welker did with Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. You know, is this her fault? And I was like, well, yes, but you know, she was clearly sent in with instructions. Mm -hmm. And she and I'm sure she followed them because that's what the stars do. I mean, the stars in our media firmament got there, not necessarily out of talent, but because they did what their bosses told them to do. So, yeah, I, I don't think that any of these folks could unilaterally say, I'm going to start writing differently or I'm going to start you know, doing my job differently. I think that they it, it's a question of the corporate cultures within their within their their uh, their newsrooms. And, and that interview with Kristen Welker was that was pre-taped. So, you know, her her executive producer above her could have looked at that and said, you know, hey, great job, uh, uh, Kristen. Now let's intersperse your questions and his answers with actual facts. It wouldn't yeah. have been that hard. And, uh, you know, again, I think that's that's ultimately the uh, responsibility. I know if it was at Brad blog, if a journalist, a reporter came to me with a story and I thought, well, it was good, but it needs this or that. It would ultimately be mm -hmm. my responsibility to make sure that got added to the story, uh, you know, before publishing it at my site. Let's, um... yeah, and it was a, and it was a tremendous missed opportunity because precisely because it was taped, mm -hmm. they had that ability. And then not choosing to do it is is a very significant choice. Let's jump into some of the um, specifics here uh, that you go through. And, and it's a it's a long uh, piece with uh, a lot of you know great in, uh, feedback from a lot of really talented uh, uh, journalists and historians and so forth, some of whom we've had on the show over the years. But uh, let's go to uh, so I'll link to that so you can get the full story. But we'll go to some of these uh, items uh, starting right at the top. Uh, pick the right frame you advise. You cite uh, Jennifer uh, Mercica who notes that uh, historian uh, who notes that there is a difference between a democracy frame and a horse race frame. I think this may be the easiest uh, for our listeners to understand because we discuss it all the time. But what is the difference between that democracy frame and that horse race race frame? How does it affect the way that media consumers perceive a presidential election? Well, because it's, it's the difference between a popularity contest and a question of what kind of America do you want to live in? And, uh, you know, the, the, the horse race frame is basically who's ahead, who's behind, you know, who, who has a, who has an ad out, what have you, um, who said something at, at what, you know, state fair, mm -hmm. uh, but a democracy frame would be looking at the stakes at what, what this person would be like when they governed. And, uh, you know, so, but there have been occasional stories here and there that do a fairly good job of pointing out what an incredibly radical presidency uh, the, a second Trump presidency would be mm -hmm. in terms of, of undercutting bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy, and, and, and God knows what else. So uh, that, that's the difference between a democracy frame and a, and a human rights and a, and a, and a horse race frame. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, and, and it's not just that frame. It's, it's, it's like basically any story you yeah. feel almost like Matt Drudge is the assignment editor here. <laughs> you know, the way that they, the way that the story is framed. So for instance, look at the impeachment hearing story. Mm -hmm. the, the, the story is framed as here's what happened at today's impeachment hearing instead of 
what the hell are we doing having an impeachment hearing <laughs> right. when there's absolutely not a shred of evidence to, to suggest that there's anything there? You know, the articles every day should be this is this is you know in another attempt to distract from the you know from the business of government. Uh -huh. Republicans staged a, a clown show, uh, you know, to to basically spout a lot of nonsense. Well, I mean, it, I wouldn't put it. I wouldn't put it quite in those terms, but 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 fundamentally, the meaning that that's that's an accurate assessment of this of this impeachment hearing. Not not you know, Merrick Garland was under fire yesterday. But actually, it it is it is accurate, and I would put it that way uh, in covering it. I think that's just fine. But you know, there's we and we talked a little bit about this on the show yesterday. You know, uh, a part of me wants to just completely ignore it because it is such nonsense. It is so much of a clown show. But then I look back at you know uh, 2016 Hillary Clinton, but her emails. I can all mm -hmm. I can go all the way back to John Kerry 2004, the swift boating. When you think these claims are so ridiculous, they don't merit coverage. And yet they are wildly effective, as I noted in that polling at the top of the, uh, the, the segment here. Somehow this stuff works. The American people believe 50-50 yeah. that maybe Joe Biden did do something wrong. How do you respond to that nonsense without giving a platform to that same nonsense? Well, I think, again, it's in the framing. If you say basically at the beginning mm -hmm. that that this is a this is you look at motive, you know, you don't just look at what they say. You say Republicans are doing this for this reason. I, I mean, the, the 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 Hunter Biden story is a perfect example. Uh, unlike Hillary's emails, where there was actually some some investigative reporting that, you know, drip, drip, that mm -hmm. continued to find stuff that was incriminating for her. We haven't found anything incriminating about about Joe Biden. I mean, Hunter Biden obviously was a disaster, but uh, it, it, so so so. They shouldn't be. Yes, they should be covering this stuff, but they should be covering it in the context of that. This is an attempt to distract that. This is not what this is not mm -hmm. the, the business of government right now. We have things to do and we have we have crises to face, you know, and 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 the and the, the solution would be for these newsrooms mm -hmm. to not just follow the agenda of the Republicans, but to set their own agenda and to say, look, here are the problems facing this country. Let's see who's trying to solve them. And what are they doing about it? And who's blocking that? Mm -hmm. That's that's the antidote. Not there's no way to write about the impeachment hearing in a way that's that's really going to be that's going to change change people's views tremendously. But if you talk about here are the problems we have, let's talk about climate change. How, mm -hmm. how who's who's out there actually proposing changes that would help? Um, or or mm -hmm. let's talk about uh, and then and let's talk about democracy. Who's 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 talking about letting more people vote and and being more representative and who's not. On the um, picking the right frame uh, point, Mercika also makes a, a note that really cuts right to it. She says uh, it matters if we call the situation at the border, the southern border, a mm -hmm. humanitarian crisis or an invasion or a relief effort. And that sort yep. of uh, puts it into stark contrast. It really does. Just those three. Take your pick of those three uh, phrases. Uh, it will make a difference in how uh, news consumers perceive what it is you are uh, reporting on. And, of course, something you and I have talked about uh, in the past, Dan, I've been hammering this. Everyone understands that stealing an election is unlawful, whereas, <laughs> oh, you know, reversing an election, undermining it, questioning it. Well, that might be legitimate. Uh, and yet mm. that's what we see uh, media still reporting as uh, Donald Trump tried to 
undermine the results. Um, right, look, and Trump stealing the documents from the White House. Yes, those, those documents were the were the the you know the uh, mm-hmm. were the property of the American public. Yep. Uh, and, and, and that's what that's what that's what the Presidential Records Act says. It's not doesn't give him cover, you know. And and he's so he's stolen. Yeah, and it's the stolen documents case. It's not the Mar-a-Lago mm-hmm. case. The right. you know the Mar-a-Lago documents case. As we hear yeah. that that stuff does make a difference. Uh, but you say uh, let's go to on uh, some of these other specifics here. Uh, report on not the odds but the stakes. Again, seems like a no brainer to me, but apparently not. To much of the media, NYU media professor uh, Jay Rosen notes, uh, what does that mean exactly for reporters who seem to spend almost 95 percent of, of their coverage? And I'm being generous there, I think, on mm-hmm. polling. W- what are the difference between the odds and the stakes? Well, again, this is a phrase that was coined by Jay Rosen, mm-hmm. and I, I think it, it really does a lot of, of lifting. Uh, the, the idea, as he says, is that you look at, at not at the chance of winning, but at the consequences of, of for a democracy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for instance, then you can actually, instead of just sort of looking at polls and 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 reading tea leaves, mm-hmm. you can actually bring the depth of experience that reporters have about the topics that they're writing about. And so, it's a much more interesting article at the end of the day than just who's up, who's down, and it's much more. It, it 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 serves the readers so much better. You you talk about uh, setting the agenda that the media ought to set the agenda. Is it up to the media to discuss what they want to talk about, or is it up to uh, you know to the candidates to to let the media and the American people know what they are running on and and hoping to accomplish in office? Well, sure, a bit of both. Absolutely. And then also the third element is what do the people want? I mm-hmm. mean, there's a there's a movement to to try to determine what is the citizen's agenda. And I think one of the ways that, that that news organizations should be setting the agenda is by going and talking to people, talking to regular Americans and saying, what's their agenda? What do they care about? And then making championing that. But yes, I'm, obviously I'm not talking about ignoring candidates, mm-hmm. but I'm saying, let's, let's say, let's identify what our problems are and then you know pick an issue, whether it's social security or healthcare or climate change or whatever, and say, Okay, what are the what what are what are people's positions? What do we do about this? And have constructive discussions about that rather than just sound, you know talking about sound bites and who's polling better. You know, it's uh, as you mentioned. Um, you know, ac- asking what the American people might actually want to know. It it reminds me, you know, in the in the town hall formats over the past many years, and Donald Trump has sort of you know blown up our ability to do that in any helpful or cogent way. But over the years during these town hall formats, during the debates and so forth, one of the things we always hear after the debates from the media is, boy, those American people sure had good questions for the candidates. (laughs) And it's true. They do. And yet you think they might learn something from that and, uh, you know, and do somehow more of that, actually find out what it is the American people want to know instead of that sort of self-reinforcing feedback. Feedback cycle that that we referenced earlier. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a it's a function of you know sort of the the your average political reporter barely gets gets away from behind their desk anymore. It doesn't actually go talk to people. You write about the importance of context. You cite Joanne Lippman, uh, uh, Gannett's former 
chief, former, notably, uh, former chief <laughs> content officer. They, they publish USA Today and hundreds of other local newspapers. She notes that journalists cover every story through the lens of left versus right, which means news consumers are woefully ill-informed on basic topics. Bidenomics, she says, has been quite successful, for example, but most people wrongly believe the economy is in the toilet. Our understanding of policies is even worse. Again, uh, won't media be perceived as taking sides if they were to characterize Biden's economic accomplishments as quite successful, as, as she describes it? And, and how does offering context change that equation, Dan? Well, let's just say, for instance, that, that uh, you know, that Bidenomics has been successful. Then wouldn't reporting that it was be accurate and not taking sides? I mean, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know it's kind of a thought puzzle there. That's right? crazy I mean, talk, Dan. Yeah, it, 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 you know, every time the the job numbers and stuff came out, you would see news organizations saying, "Yeah, they look good, but mm -hmm. you know, uh, but we're really headed for a recession." I mean, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a there's a complete pessimism about anything that Biden does, mm -hmm. and it infects the coverage. And I understand reporters not wanting to be boosters, and they shouldn't be boosters, but they should be accurate, for the love of God. Um, and, and they should put things in the in context. My favorite advice in that section was from Jim Fallows, who was a, mm -hmm. a, you know, one of the great giants of, of journalism, who says, read some goddamn U.S. history. He says. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, what not to do. One piece of advice also from Joanne Lippman is, quote, stop getting sucked into culture war sound bites that are simply meant to inflame and get coverage. Now, of course, I agree. But that so-called culture war, Dan, has now become legislation, it, law in many places. Abortion has been banned. Books are being removed from libraries. Teachers are uh, being censored by the government and threatened with firing or worse for simply talking about sexuality, race, gender, etc. How do you correctly cover those culture war issues without sharing one entire side of the issue as, as purposely inflammatory as, as it may be? Well, I think that you know, one thing you I was thinking about this yesterday. One thing that you don't get much is is coverage of the positive sides of pluralism. I mean, I think that mm. that that as 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 the country you know gets more and more steeped in a certain state, certainly in in homophobia and misogyny and 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 uh, you know virulently, violently anti-trans uh, behavior and so on. Mm -hmm. We need to actually, as the media, remind people of what America is, which is mm -hmm. ideally a, a pluralistic country where where differences are appreciated, not demonized. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a whole you know there's a whole message that's missing from this. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, yes, of course we have to cover it, but. But but you, you you sort of do the equivalent of the truth sandwich. The truth sandwich is when you cover a lie, you say here's what's true, here's what they said that was a lie, and here's and here's again what's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what you do is you say you know people have a right to exist. Look at what they're doing in Florida, and then go back to the joys of pluralism. I mean the the, the, the there's it's it's about the framing. If you just let these people, you, you start with here's what they did, here's why they did it. Here's more why they did it. And then here's a Democrat saying it's not a good idea. 
That's mm-hmm. not very good coverage at all. That's mm-hmm. but that is that's what we see time and time again. You uh, and and I want to uh, get to one other story that you wrote last week. So last question for now on this uh, issue of of advice to newsroom leaders. Uh, you you have a a, seg- a section here called defend yourself which I kind of want to read as, for God's sakes, man, defend yourself. Journalism itself, you note, is under attack. How should journalists themselves be pushing back on that attack? But doesn't that place them at the cent- place them themselves at the center of the story? And isn't that what, uh, as Jay Rosen would say, you know, the view from nowhere journalists, they're not supposed to be inserting themselves. How, how are they supposed to uh, push back on that attack? Well, you know, you don't just broadcast the attack. You, you, you again. You put it in context. You say, "Here is why. You know, here, here is the role that journalism plays. Here, here is what we do as journalists, and here is, and here is why it's engendering this incredible hostility." I, I think that that's a that's a hell of a great, good story. Mm. So you, you, you tell it. I mean, you don't contribute to to basically the undermining of your own legitimacy, as as one of the people I talked to said. That's you know the 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 fact is that that this is the way authoritarian regimes start their march to authoritarianism is they undermine independent media. That is mm-hmm. almost always the very first step. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. These people are attacking us, and not like boo-hoo, but. This is what authoritarians do. Uh, Dan, uh, you also, I want to hit this before I let you go, uh, wrote a piece with some advice for CNN, who I think needs a lot of advice these days, Dan. <laughs> it's headline, CNN should become the anti-Fox pro-truth network. You write, in a media environment awash in malignant misinformation, there is an obvious open path a revived CNN could follow under new CEO Mark Thompson. It is to rebut the lies as enthusiastically and entertainingly as Fox and others spread them. So I call on CNN to relaunch itself as the anti-Fox. But uh, Dan, as I am told, though I disagree, isn't MSNBC already the anti-Fox? I don't think so. I think that it it doesn't it doesn't actively rebut the misinformation the way that it does. It sort of ignores it too much. Mm. And I think to some extent, it actually is a little bit more of sort of left-wing propaganda as a, as a contrast to Fox and right-wing propaganda. I don't think it's anywhere. It, it doesn't doesn't pervert information. Mm-hmm. I mean, the parallels are very, I don't want to stress that too much because MSNBC is not the Fox of the left. Right. It helps um, Fox to describe MSNBC as the Fox of the left. Yeah. I mean, Fox does not adhere to basic journalistic values. Mm-hmm. MSNBC does. But I don't know that it has adopted this notion of we're going to explain and show what Fox is lying about. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 I don't think that for the largest part, they have much fun doing it. This is a hell of a story. I mean, you've got people who are just lying their asses off on a daily basis. And, and, you know, actually, in some ways, it it reminds me of of Jon Stewart's The Daily Show. Mm -hmm. That was popular for a reason, Mm -hmm. because he joyfully called out the lies. And I think you can do that as a news show, becoming, you know, just, uh, you can do it entertainingly. 
Yeah, uh, no, you can. And as you describe it in your piece, the CNN I have in mind would identify what the public misunderstands the most and throw everything they've got at helping the public understand it better. This CNN would actively invite viewers who aren't news junkies and who may be low information voters to come in and get better informed. Well, there's an idea. This CNN <laughs> wouldn't be partisan, but it would uh, but it also wouldn't be afraid to be perceived as partisan. I think that's really important. You it's sadly true that modern Republican Party has become so deceitful and divisive that taking a pro-truth, pro-pluralism stand is inevitably uh, appears partisan to some. And then you add, did I mention this CNN would be fun? Anchors and reporters could revel in calling out the preposterous fabrications of Fox and other right-wing news sources. They could also mock the rest of the elite media for both sidesing issues that are ultimately ultimately asymmetrical and for being afraid to say what they know to be true. Boy, I don't know if I like that idea, Dan. It sounds like CNN would be uh, stomping on the broadcast ground here if they did. (laughs) I don't know. I think a little competition would be healthy. It probably would. (laughs) All right. Well, that is your slogan, after all, afflicting comfortable journalists. So thanks, Dan. Dan Frumkin, you you can find his, uh, and and you should uh, read this piece. It's uh, detailed with some great advice from some great historians and journalists. Uh, headlined a desperate appeal to newsroom leaders on the eve of a chaos election. And, of course, I'll also link to his article about CNN as well. You can find all of that at presswatchers.org. And I think, Dan, you're no longer on Twitter, but you're over there on Mastodon. Is that right? No, I'm I'm still on Twitter. Oh, I, I, I'm embarrassed, but it's still the the best place for media criticism. You know, it, for for to to be heard and to and to speak about media problems. You it's will. terrible. I hate it. <laughs> it is terrible. Shame on you, Dan. You can Thank find you. him over at uh, Twitter at simply Frumkin. Dan, always great speaking with you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again soon. Okay, you take care, brother. Thanks, brother. All right, we've got to get out. But yes. Desi Doyen, I'll tell you one of the downsides of this sort of a criticism of the media is that it also allows them to say, well, the Republicans say we're doing a terrible job. The progressives and Democrats are critical as well. I guess we must be doing something right. And of course, that is nonsense. That's not what how facts work. I can't believe you're going to start holding the journalists to reporting facts <laughs> and worrying about that sort of thing. Anyway, we've got to get out. We will continue those worries in the days ahead, I suspect. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other we have ever done, down you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you kind enough, thoughtful enough, generous enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves and keep telling the truth. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and yes, site formerly known as Twitter. You will find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world. Listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate.